Yeah, there's a polyphony of, of, of different organisations working, mm-hmm. uh, which is much much better way of running an ecology, I think. Yeah. So it's kind of, so it really is kind of like a hippie kind of thing. It's it's like a com, it's almost communal. No. No. I don't know. <laughs> I will leave it. <laughs> I'll edit that bit out. <laughs> and this is the end of all things. I'm coming to you today from inside uh, a boardroom, inside my actual day job place of work. Um, I don't really want to tell you where that is in case some, I was going to say, in case some super fan decides to track me down. Um, But it's really because they probably don't want to be mentioned in the podcast. I don't know. We'll see. I'm on my lunch hour, so you can relax. I'm uh, not skiving in case someone from my actual job actually is listening to this. Um, how can I prove it's my lunch break, you ask? Well, because I've got my lunch bag here. You see? I would have gone outside as usual, but it's fucking freezing out there right now. Um, I'm wearing a sweater on the 25th of May. The end of days is coming, losers. Believe it. Today, you get two interviews for the price of one. In the first, I speak with Steve Dearden, who's a writer, producer. Um, He's also the head of the bit famous kind of Arts Council-funded writing development program for young people. That was a mouthful. Called The Writing Squad. He's a guy who's basically been involved with every writing or arts organization in the country. He'd probably say I'm overselling that. But if you look on his website, he's virtually had something to do with everybody. And thankfully for me, he enjoys talking about the biz, as Will Self calls it. Um, He's got a great insight about how the publishing industry, well, not publishing, the writing world, I suppose, works and how it's changed over the years. Um, He also, thankfully for me, enjoys dishing the dirt and uh, speaking his mind, which is great for this podcast. And he's also quite funny, which is another bonus. And then after that, I talked to Lenny Sanders, who is one half of an experimental and immersive performing duo called iOrganic, and Jasmine Chatfield, who runs the Manchester Lit Night Flim Night. Um, They also perform plays together under the pseudonym, pseudonym, is that the right word? Under the name Dead Lads, and took their first play, uh, which happens to be post-apocalyptic, which, again, thank you for that, perfect for this podcast, um, called Nuclear Roommates to Edinburgh, uh, a play that was helped along the way by Steve and the writing squad in various ways. Well, I'm, he wasn't sure if they'd actually given them money or if it was just help in writing it, but um, Lenny's also a, an alumni of the writing squad. So you see how it all ties together? It's almost like I planned it. Um, I recorded the interview with Steve in the old Corner House Cinema, and I've done a few from there, and the sound in there is amazing, uh, really lovely and clear, and unfortunately, uh, the, the cinema wasn't available when I interviewed Jasmine and Lenny. Um, I interviewed them a few months ago, and we did it in one of the upstairs rooms, which is at street level. So it sounds like it's coming from a garage with all these rattly 
doors opening and closing and, you know, people actually talking to each other and having fun outside, which is, you know, really annoying. Yeah, I don't know what was going on with the heavy sliding doors, but hey, it's the risks you run when you record on location, man. I'm uh, interviewing Andrew McMillan tonight in the Corner House again, but that will probably be my last Corner House interview, as I've got a permanent studio now in the old Islington Mill in Salford, which is fairly exciting. I bought an old, uh, I'm old, I mean vintage table and chairs and recovered the chairs myself like an actual man who's good at DIY. Uh, and they look amazing. Um, I'm surprisingly good with a staple gun. Uh, so yeah, I've got the table and chairs and I'm going to get some black curtains and some lamps and actually put some of that weird foam stuff on the walls. So it's almost like a, a real recording studio or something. Islington Mill is an interesting place if you've never been before. I suppose the polite person would call it bohemian. The best bit about it is that it's cheap and it's full of all these like artsy and creative people. Um, so it's got a really cool vibe. You know, it's artsy, it's creative, it's full of young people doing interesting and amazing things. But it's a kind of place where you kind of have to watch where you're walking, if you catch my drift, in case you might step in or on something. What's the best way to describe it? Right, imagine, right, imagine like a band who's about to get famous, practicing out of a garage. And this garage is owned by their mother. And they've been going for a while, and they've had enough money to buy the really good kit. But they've just kind of strewn, strewn it about amongst, you know, crumpled cans of Red Stripe. That's basically Islington Mill, only way bigger and way, way more Red Stripe. They won't kick me out for saying that, will they? It's great. I'm sharing the space, the studio space, with a super cool woman called Louise and her really cool design company. I'm going to stop saying cool now. Um, I say woman, but I'm pretty sure the combined age of everyone who works there is about 16 and a half Young people are so good at, uh, at things straight out of the gate these days, it's well annoying. Um, Louise has done a music video for the Inspiral Carpets, for God's sake. And that's, they're, pretty, they're a big band, so I'm told. The fake Persian rug that I'm going to be getting for the studio is going to be care of Louise's dad. So thank you, Louise's dad. Is that the first sponsorship plug I've ever done? Maybe. Hopefully there'll be more. Um, Lenny and Jasmine are two more of these industrious young people running lit nights and taking a play to Edinburgh Um, and they're only about five Um, I mean I've I've so wasted my life I can't believe all the things these people are doing and at such young ages I talk about this phenomenon of overachievement that seems to be happening with the young these days the youths with Steve actually hoping to have a proper moan with him about youths. But uh, he really seems to like them and genuinely has an interest in helping them do things. Sickening. Uh, Steve and I drink Stella during our interview, like what old men are supposed to do, and somehow managed to get through the whole thing without beating each other to death, which is good. We have, I guess you could say, different experiences when it comes to creative writing MAs. When I say experiences, different ideas about them and how they fit and whether they're good things or not. 
I'm going to let him tell you what he thinks of them in the interview. But obviously, if you've listened to this podcast before, you know how I feel about creative writing MAs. I fucking love it. Um, I, the one I'm doing right now, this podcast is part of my MA, is it's helping me immensely with my writing. And I, I will never, ever get over the novelty of, you know, actually going into a university library and looking at books, taking them out. Um, and, you know, it's such a great vibe and it's, I'm taking it way too seriously and I'm the worst kind of ultra keener. Um, but yeah, what can I say? I don't know where that came from. Steve also talks about the state of the writing industry. I think I mentioned that earlier, but, and he says that this is the best time to be a writer in Britain because the gatekeepers are gone. Um, it's a pretty amazing revelation to me, actually, because I thought it was just horrible and desolate. But um, he's a really nice guy to talk to and quite inspiring. Um, and the interview is really good, if I do say so myself. I was totally relaxed and didn't have a single meltdown or brain freeze. Stella for the win. I was originally going to make Steve's interview 30 minutes to match Lenny and Jasmine's running length of their interview um, and to keep the podcast in general to a reasonable running length. But we're having too good a chat to do that, so the podcast is the longest one ever. Um, but hey, I don't... So what? I don't know why I stress about these things. It's a podcast. It's not a radio show. You don't have to listen to it all in one go. That's what the pause button is for. I may have put a running menu thing on my website to tell you when each... where the intro starts and the, each interview starts and the outro... Um, just so you can skip to the bits you want to hear. But I also may have not done it because, now that I think of it, it sounds like quite a lot of unnecessary work to do. And I don't feel like doing it. Maybe I've done it. Who knows? Go ahead and look there anyway if you want. I'm going to the Hay Festival this weekend, which I think I should be excited about, you know, being a, you know aspiring writer and being around all these people who are a bit famous and Dara O'Brien, randomly. Um, if, my, if I had a brain or a marketing bone in my body, I suppose I'd, I'd have contacted the festival beforehand to see if I could have worked some kind of press pass into it to talk to the writers, to talk, actually talk to the writers and maybe put some of them on this podcast. But, you know, of course, like every great idea I have, I thought of it way too late. And... I'm going to take my recorder anyway to record the intro to the next Powered Podcast and, you know, maybe pluck up the courage to stick it in Salman Rushdie's face. Hey, Salman, hi. What's it like to be a genius? You know, questions like that, really good ones. I have no idea what to expect, but I imagine that it's going to be the most middle-class thing on earth. But I, th I guess I'll fit right in because I've just ordered a veg box. So we have vegetables coming to our house now. And I have to figure out something to do with venison mints, apparently. Out middle class that. What I'm trying to say is, maybe the Hay Festival needs a podcast. Next year. I've also had a major publisher send me a load of books to read in the hopes that I interview their writers, uh, which is quite exciting, and only the second time that that's happened. The books were hardbacks as well, which are my favorite thing in the world. And one of the writers lives in Manchester, 
and he's a bit famous, so I was well up for interviewing him. It was a really quite a good day. Publisher gave me his email address, and when I asked him, he said, nah. So clearly, I'm still not 100% sure how this works. I would assume that if someone sends me a book, they want me to interview them. But, you know, I guess not. Oh, well, it's free books anyway. I'm never going to say no to free books. The most annoying thing about it is his book is really fucking great as well. So it's, it would have been uh, an amazing interview. Maybe someday. There are two readings in this podcast. A great big long one by Steve at the end. <laughs> uh, I'm leaving that in. A great big long reading at the end by Steve. And an improvised reading off the top of her head by Lenny, which was quite impressive. Um, but why am I talking so much about the interviews? They are coming up right now, so listen. There's, there's three things about the, that the writing squad isn't, or two things that isn't, and one okay. thing that defines it. And the two things it isn't is it's not a youth arts project. Mm-hmm. We just happen to work with writers who are young, and we certainly don't teach anything. Okay. We might get involved in technique and tips and all that kind of stuff, but it's much more about treating them as artists and working on them, their art and their whole experience as a, as a person, trying to make it as a writer or as an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, what it is, is, is it's, it's built around their needs. So although there is a core programme of workshops and one-to-ones, and projects, as soon as we can, we begin to tailor those towards the characteristics of particular squads. So it might be that we do, you know, a songwriting workshop mm-hmm. or a more film, or I'm sure this time we'll do more around YA and genre because we have more writers um, in the current s- squad that we've just selected who are doing that. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, and it's a, it's a project which, uh, it was based, and I know you're an avid Manchester United fan. <laughs> I wouldn't say have it. <laughs> no, I was being <laughs> yeah, I have sarcastic. to. No, to be honest, I do take the piss a lot, but I have to cheer for them because my, all my in-laws are Reds and they're from Stratford. <laughs> so I do take the piss. And I, because I support, and I, sorry, I don't mean to derail your conversation. No, no, at all, no, no, no. But because I do support, I've, my whole life has been supporting really awful, broke-ass sports teams, it's very difficult for me to support one that's really, really, really rich. Right. Um, but, you know, if someone gives me a ticket, <laughs> I'm not going to say no. no. <laughs> Sorry, go on. Well, we were very influenced by the class of 92 mm-hmm. and the fact that, you know, that what the academy at, at, um, at uh, United developed, you know, a group of players and developed them as all-round people, really, not to, you know, what Eric Harrison yeah. used to do there was, you know, was, of course it was skills-based, it was about skills on the field, mm-hmm. but it was also about how they handled themselves as young men and right. footballers. And so our approach has always kind of had, tried to have that holistic side. And the thing that we really, I mean, I've been meeting all the, the, the workshops for this new squad start on Saturday, and I've been meeting all the writers individually where they live, thinking this would be really interesting if the university lecturers, course leaders went and met all their students before they started in the places they live. It might mm-hmm. change the nature of that relationship. But anyway, I've been doing that. And, um, you know, the, 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 the thing that um, I try and emphasise to them is that they're, they're coming into a programme which is 
um, as much a community of artists as a, as a development program now. Uh, and it's something they're joining for a two-year program, but you know they're doing that at a very fluid moment of their lives. And mm-hmm. it may be that they can't take everything we're offering at the moment. It might be that they're going one. You know, one of them is going to Beirut for a year, mm-hmm. another's going to Stockholm. They tell me that really shamefacedly, but I say that's fantastic. You know, better for the squad that we've got people. But, but why would all they? over the world? Yeah. Um, and as, because we we're a virtual community, we you'd use um, you know Facebook and email and Skype. As much as workshops, then you know where they are is less yeah. and less important. Mm. And th- so they join us, but and this is a relationship that can go beyond the two years. In fact, you know some of the the critical interventions we sometimes make with writers is after the two year program. Right. Okay. Know, because so that's what it is a two year program. It's a two year program, eight workshops, eight one to ones, lots of projects that they can get involved in. Um, uh, and 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 access to that kind of community, and also access to a lot of information. We try and keep them as informed about opportunities as possible. Because right. again, unlike many development programs for young writers, or some development programs for young writers that like to own them and keep them in, yeah. we we want them to be as profligate as possible. Right. And really but doesn't that kind of fly everything. in the face of the whole kind of you know Manchester United youthful you know building them up as people as well as as artists, um, kind of. Yeah, well, we, we, and I mean, I guess there's the tribal element in, in football. We, we don't, you know, we're not, we're not asking them to join a team and we're not asking them for loyalty in that mm-hmm. sense. Um, no, we want them to go out there and play as many games as possible <laughs> for whatever team wants them to, mm. you know, play and to learn as much. Yeah. Um, because there's a lot more out there. I mean, when we started in 2001, there was no creative writing modules at undergraduate level. Right. There, were, there weren't things around like Cuckoo in the Northeast or mm-hmm. Leeds Young Authors or Sheffield Young Writers or the kind of programs like the Royal Exchange or Contact do here. There wasn't as many of those. Um, so really, you know, one of the reasons, for, that was exactly the reason we set it up, that you know, I was meeting writers in their 30s and 40s who had missed the same opportunities that people would have had had they been fine artists or actors or musicians mm-hmm. who would have gone through either an academic route, a conservatoire route, an amateur mm-hmm. route, um, or a training route, and would, 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 there wouldn't have been that break in the, the age yeah. group that we work with, with there was for writers. Well, it's interesting to say that, because that's, that's very... You, you're basically describing my upbringing, really. Um, we had... I think one of the big things that... And you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but one of the things that is terrible in Canada and what used to be really good here is post-secondary education and it being free. And I think what you're what I'm seeing now with students, it's echoing what's happened in Canada when I was going to school, when you know schooling became so expensive that people couldn't afford it. Once that happens, kids stop taking going into the arts because they don't see it as a way to make a living. Um, it's you know if you're spending you know nine thousand pounds a year, which which is It'd be funny if it wasn't so tragic. Um, you need something at the end of it to be able to pay those loans off and stuff. So I think, uh, do you think that's kind of why, do you think it's suffered, like th- that kind of training isn't in their regular schooling, like it's not in high school or it's not in university, or is, is that even uh, on your radar yet at all? No, I, I mean, my, my, my worry is slightly different, I think. Um, <clears throat> I think certainly for, in terms of... Um, 
opportunity throughout the social spectrum. That certainly had an effect. So mm-hmm. Students from less well-off um, backgrounds do think much more carefully both whether they go into a further education and also what further education and, and the, the kind of utility of that education when they go into it. But I think for for the you know the kind of kids that we tend to work with or the, who are people who are really dedicated to creative writing and more generally in, 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 in terms of art courses mm. I, I'm not sure that people worry about that too much mm. yet although they are they do start thinking quite quickly what they might be doing yeah. afterwards in a way that you know I had to clue for years after university yeah. my worry is much more about the fact that universities see creative writing as a fairly cheap way of bringing in a lot of money mm-hmm. And certainly looking at writing squad applications over the last two periods, I'm looking at people who are on creative writing undergraduate courses and MAs who do not have the basic skills and aptitude to be writers. Mm -hmm. And it's like looking at a load of pilots at pilot school who couldn't pass the aptitude tests, but Mm -hmm. they're going to take the 60 grand anyway. Mm -hmm. And I think that's... um, uh, I think in Canada there's a lot more... Uh, some universities in this country are, are choosing and pick people from portfolios of work. I think most in Canada do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the evidence I see is that there are a lot of people who are basically being ripped off by universities for really? when they should they should they shouldn't be on creative writing courses because mm-hmm. unless it's clear that it's a hobby course, you know that's fair enough. You're doing something as a hobby, but I'm not yep. sure that's what university's about. No. And also, I think it's bad for the good students. Because um, you know the, the quality of seminar groups, the quality of, um, of of discourse within courses, is is not good enough. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the students aren't good enough. And I could go on. I mean, there's yeah. a whole load of stuff about. You know, one of the things that we have to emphasise to our recruits is that we're not a kind of private tutor service for people doing creative writing at university. Right. Because quite a common theme that runs through our relationship with writers who are doing creative writing courses is the absence of their tutors and the lack of one-to-one time um, the inability to get detailed feedback on work I mean there are exceptions mm-hmm. uh, but those exceptions tend to be individuals rather than courses and mm. that's worrying yeah. and I would really love the introduction of some sort of trip advisor <laughs> or rip-off advisor um, yeah. kind of site um, where people could be honest about yeah. creative writing. I did a, 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 I chaired a, an event at Wakefield a couple of years ago when a load of people from one creative writing MA came to talk about the creative writing MA and how good it was. Mm-hmm. And I asked them at the end, you know, look, actually, you know, I know and you know that it depends very much on which tutor you get as mm. to how good the course is. And they, get, they all went, yes, 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 absolutely. I mean, mostly the course was crap, but, you know, I was lucky enough I had Leslie Glaister or mm-hmm. Jane Rogers or particular tutors. That's who, the same with anything, though, isn't it? Well, I don't think that's an excuse. No. You know, I don't think... I've, I, I made this pitch at the Norway Conference, National Association of Writers mm-hmm. and Education Conference, in front of loads of creative writing teachers <laughs> a couple of years ago and the woman on the panel with me said exactly that she said well that sounds just like my pgce and i think so is that good enough yeah you know this is you you promote yourself as elite courses then surely you have to you know recruit elite students and mm-hmm. then treat them in the way that you would you know if you were again an elite team yeah. sporting team so 
so the writing squad then basically, uh, I still can't get my head around what it is that you, because you're not teaching them anything. You, well, you say they're not teaching them. You might, you're obviously, you must be teaching them something. Um, but you're doing workshops. And, so is it kind of a collaborative? Yeah. We, but I there's mean, no, like, you're not saying, you know, <laughs> this is for lack of better understanding, yeah. that's a noun, that's an adverb. No, absolutely it's not, not. It's not like grammar or anything. Like, you're teaching them how to no, we, create I mean, a story? I mean, there's, a, there's, 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 there's two sides of things. There okay. are the workshops, and the workshops tend to be with professional writers. So there's the core team, which is Helen Mort, the poet, Janice mm-hmm. Worth, the novelist, Stevie Ronnie, who's a poet and visual artist and playing mm-hmm. around with media. And then we bring other people in, like Mark Catley, who's a, a writer for... Um, he's a series producer for Casualty and, mm-hmm. um, and uh, writes called The Midwife and a lot of experience in television. Mm-hmm. Um, so they will do workshops, which might be games that are focused on character. They might be writing games that are focused on seeing. Mark Catley's is very much based around the, ten, the John York model of ten things, every script, story, whatever. Should okay. have. Um, and then we might get people in to do special things like my mate John Griffin, who's MD of Headstrong Pictures, comes in and does a pitching workshop. Okay. Um, we did a folk, uh, we did a songwriting workshop with Catherine Williams recently. But no one stands up and, you know, lectures. We try and stop people giving out handouts. Mm-hmm. You know. um, we, uh, you know, another one we do is a, a, a thing with Romy Smith um, where we, we go into a, a studio in Leeds over a day, do some work on performance and then film in the theatre, the people doing it, and then mm-hmm. we look, watch it back. So, of course, there is there is an element of, 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 of creating learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, you know, if I'm... And, and, and then in the one-to-ones, you, you would have something which is much more um, focused around them. So, you know, at the beginning of the process, we would agree with them that... We want to work on a novel together, or we want yep. to work on a series of short stories, or sure. we want to work on a collection of poems, um, or we might just, you know, sit down and work with a writer around prose style and, you know, all the yep. usual stuff, eliminate adverbs, yep. bring the tense as close to the present as possible. And so, but we're, we're doing that as, as fellow writers, or it's, it's much more of an editing process on yep. their work than some abstract stuff around. Right. Um, you know, this is this is this is a model of practice that we would we would um, we would promote. Right. So and do then, they? Ha- and then things arise, like you know, last year line breaks arose as an issue, mm-hmm. and lots of, <laughs> lots of the poets wanted to do a workshop on line breaks, which was kind of. <laughs> I just thought, well, they come when they come, don't they? And so yeah. Helen Helen led one, and it was fascinating. You know, ah. so, but that was that again. That was something that they said they wanted. Yeah. Um, because we would have never imagined necessarily. So how do you? choose students is, is there some kind of proficiency because you, you, you mentioned that with the MAs you think that it's kind of a, a well I, I know that's quite a general thing and that, I'm, that it's a bit of a not a cash grab but y- you say that you don't think that there's the rigorous kind of um, vetting of the students beforehand How, what do you do I think in students? some universities it is a cash grab mm. um and colleges. Um, okay. What we do is they submit ten pages of work okay. and a letter, which is asks we ask them to describe where they think they are in with their writing and yeah. what they want out of the squad. Yeah. Uh, the letter is really interesting because you know it, it, it places them and it helps us think. Well, you know, 
sometimes we have people who are very, very good and there's absolutely no doubt from the work that we want to work with them. Other times we get people who aren't technically proficient, but they know where they are and they know what they want and it's going to be exciting mm-hmm. to do that journey with them. So there is a range of writers. They're not all amazing now. Yeah. Some are. Um, but you but, see, you can see promise. There must be some yeah, kind of... Yeah, or, or there's, you know, I'm thinking, uh, there's, 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 it might be promise uh, it might be that they bring a voice or a perspective mm-hmm. to the squad a different kind of life experience they're not just sitting around writing about love affairs and mm-hmm. being hurt and <laughs> you know that you there's money in that go, there's good money yeah, in that yeah, Steve exactly <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know it might be that they they've had a particular life experience or come from a different place and, and yep. we feel that's they've got something to say and having that voice is valuable within the squad yeah um, so there's the the Although it's the, we go for an elite level on standard of work, that standard is more to do with where that writer is and where they want to go than any kind of um, assessment level okay. or benchmark. Right. Know. And you don't have, like, because you say that a lot of the students this year are doing kind of genre fiction-y kind of stuff. Yeah. Is that just, that's just a fluke, is it? Or do you yeah. kind of have themes? Is it? Yeah. Is it, do you think? Do you find that things come in waves of? Yeah. Um, is right. So some things are more popular just because this is 2016 and genre fiction is more popular this year. Um, I, I I I think maybe they've read the people who are writing genre fiction have read more different authors. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're not all just imitating the obvious ones. Mm-hmm. Um, YA is getting bigger because I think you know the, the kind of YA books on the market are much more sophisticated than they used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, genre is interesting because you know I was saying to I met one <laughs> today who who um, is a genre writer and I was saying to him there's always a bell that goes off in my head because I I don't read genre. Yeah, you know if I read Stanislaw Lem I'm reading him as a short story writer right. not as a science fiction writer. Or I read The Hunger Games because my daughter was reading it. I don't, th- and it's a good book. I don't mm-hmm. think of it, you know, as dystopian fiction. Um, so, the, you know, when I start, when I read the first line, you know, the Vilmillion sun hung over the grey plain, which they all start with the sun and the plain. Um, mm-hmm. I go, right, calm down. You have to, you have to just not. You have to go on with this. Let it, let it speak to you. And um, and this year there were more that once you read on, started telling you a story and you forgot that it was a particular genre mm. and you began to care about the characters. Yeah. And um, and all the world they were creating was slightly different from all the tropes that you've seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's that's quite exciting. Um, and it's quite exciting for us as well in that we're confounding our own prejudices by, mm-hmm. yeah. by, by recruiting people. Because well, then you get down to the, exactly the same stuff, you know, about how prose works and how to... Um, how to make it lean and effective? Yeah, to make it well. Would you say make it more literary? No, make it more effect, less literary. Less literary. Oh God! Well, yeah. Hmm. I mean, I just go back to the. You know, I'm a prose writer, so yeah. I mean, you know, in terms of um, prose, the thing I say to everybody is, "Would you say it?" Mm-hmm. You know, even poetry, we say that as well. You know, would you say that? And. Yep. Um, you know, you can go through a whole, post, whole piece of fiction saying, you know, would you say that? And um, are you talking you, about like dialogue or you mean, no, no, everything? Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I do it to my own writing. I've just done it, you know, so, uh, to I can't remember the line I took out on the way over, but there was, <laughs> um, 
you know, I was reading a piece the other day, and you know, he was saying something like that. You know, the contagious memory of the trees <laughs> hung over the park, and you think, yeah. would you would you ever say that in <laughs> yeah. a conversation? Yeah. You know, what are you trying to say to me about the trees? Mm-hmm. Just say it, and then write that down. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, you know, there's a danger, I suppose. We, I mean, we're always asking ourselves this in this quad, but is there a danger that we have a, a style which is exclusive? Um, and perhaps there might be, and, and, and if it is anything, it is that. And it might be, again, something to do with the fact that most of us are politicised, most of us mm-hmm. are from the north, um, most of us are, have a kind of anti-establishment position, mm-hmm. Um, well, that so kind of lends itself to genre fiction, doesn't it? Yeah, but it also lends itself to a language. So, yeah. you know, we call a spade a spade, not, um, mm. you know, a, a gleaming shovel or you mm-hmm. know, whatever. It's a spade. Right. You know. Or it might be a shovel if the character's a bit older, but yeah. it's never going to be gleaming. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the questions I was going to ask you, and I, I'm kind of changing my mind now, was just going to be, why would you try to... And this is this is the most jaded, cynical question I could possibly imagine. Fine. Why would you try to help people go into the writing industry when it's as dire as it is, or do you not think it is? Do you think it's a? What it's, do you think of the state of the writing industry? Is? It's the best time ever to go into it. It's probably the worst time to make money. Mm-hmm. Um, but none of us started off to make money. Some do, mm. know, obviously, and some become good at it. And, yeah. And, and, um, I think know, people I, come in to make a living, though. There's a difference between making, you know, J.K. Rowling kind of, but to be able to make to scratch out a living of any kind. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Again, it's a northern thing. Money doesn't right. mean money. It's mm-hmm. just uh, <laughs> like cash, you know, mm-hmm. to have some cash from it. And I, and I, mean, yeah. I, I know you talk about I know and things, and I agree with you. I mean, I, I I don't think writers should ever do something for free unless it's a tactical decision to create work for them in the future. Yeah. Um, you know the whole festival argument is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so, uh, you know, I think writers should try and monetize their value. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, the the exciting, the corollary of that is that the gatekeepers have gone, um, and it's it's, you know, it's it's a process that's been going on for a long time. I mean, I I, I suppose I started my literary li- literature career in. Um, the 80s and 90s in the north, you know, it, with against the backdrop of Thatcher, the miners' mm-hmm. strike, um, and at that time, prior to that time, um, you know, if you wanted to be a writer, you really had to wait for someone called Emily, who worked for a London publishing house, to um, give you the authority to call yourself a writer by mm-hmm. accepting you as on their books as you know, either an agent or a publisher. Uh, and what the kind of political action that happened um, that I think people like Yorkshire Art Circus were doing in, in the um, late 80s and 90s, where they were you know, basically going into communities, collecting stories, making books, and distributing those books the next day, whether that was on the coach to a protest in London or whether mm-hmm. it was in a locality... Um, you know, is basically reclaiming the the means of production and distribution. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, the story I tell quite often um, when you know I used to work for the Arts Council, and people always used to ring me up and say, "Can I? Um, I want to get some work published." And I'd always ask who it was for, um, because often it was a family. 
and in which case you just say, well, make a beautiful book. Mm-hmm. You know, get it printed, make a beautiful book, and make one, two, three copies, and that's fine. Because um, Emily's never going to publish your life story. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and uh, the, the thing that I will we'll never forget was being rung up by a woman. Called Emily. Um, Nisha, I don't know what she was called. I don't, think, I don't think she ever gave me her name. But she mm-hmm. rang me up and said, look, I, um, I, I have some poems I want published. And I said, why? And she said, well, I'm dying of cancer. I've had a terrible experience in the hospital. And I've got these poems which are kind of angry. And I want to distribute them amongst the other patients and the staff. So I said, well, she had three months to live. Gosh. So Emily wasn't going to get a book no. in that time. So anyway, I said to her, well, why don't you photocopy them and give them out? And she, the, what she said to me was, am I allowed to do that? And I think that was the tyranny, if you right. like, of that wow. old system of gatekeepers. That yeah. it, it didn't allow people to validate themselves by the audiences that they were able to reach. And what's happened since then in terms of, um, you know, self-publishing, mm-hmm. the indie press is the internet, um, electronic media, the ability to you know make film, to record sound, to do this on your phone, yep. is that it's put us back in control of our own voices and our own media. Mm. So it's hugely exciting. That doesn't answer the problem of cash and how mm-hmm. one makes living as a writer. But... Um, you know, if we want to write, we will find ways of doing it, whether yeah. we're working as a doctor or yeah. um, um, working for an aid agency in Thailand or we're staying at home looking after our kids. You know, yeah. we can we can still write and sometimes make money from it. Mm-hmm. Some will be lucky, get deals and go on. Other peoples will spend their life being part of um, local writing ecologies and valuable parts of local ecologies. Yep. Uh, and, and that's cool and that's exciting that yeah. I could go into somewhere and there'd be poets who are, or writers who are content to be within those ecologies mm-hmm. and telling important local stories to local audiences mm. and sometimes that breaks out you know you see it with bloggers you know I've known bloggers who've written the, you know some examples from the Northern Blog Awards of people who've gone on to get book deals from from very particular personal stories which have just suddenly burst out of the niche yep. and found people in other countries and other parts of the country who yeah. who are interested in that story. Yeah. I, I struggle with, and this is something that with the podcast that I've learned uh, and something I'm still learning is uh, generosity. The idea of being generous versus protecting your own interests. Exactly. I think that's something that's really, it's something I'm, I'm still struggling with. I'm, I'm s- slowly moving more into the gener- generosity side. Um, but I think Joe, do you know Joe Bell? Yeah. Yeah. She, she's a big proponent of, you know, hey, we're all in this together and let's help each other as much as we can. Yeah. And I'm, I'm assuming you must be as well. The question I asked her, and I'll ask you the same question, is if you're helping, and I mean, it's probably different with because the people that you help are so young, but if you're helping loads of other people, isn't that kind of making a, a really huge pool even bigger of writers yeah and that's that, that's a good thing yeah it's my responsibility to yeah. be as good as I can I can't blame you know the fact that there are other writers out there for I mean this again takes you back to the academy where there are people who actually would be much rather writing you know they they go into the academy to pay the mortgage yeah and you you know I think there's a whole issue around jealousy in the academy definitely uh, I keep 
finding it. You know, people who marked down or dismissed for perfectly good work because you know actually when you analyse the situation, the lecturer is jealous of them. Mm. Um, you know, whereas from the writing squad point of view, I want people to be better than I was, yeah. better than I am, um, yeah. and to to have more opportunity. And you know, I get satisfaction from that. Um, and yeah, you people. I don't know. Maybe it's a perverse. Uh, the, the, the Is the, it a northern thing to be generous? N- no, but I mean, it'd be crazy to say that. But like, <laughs> <laughs> we're more generous than you. you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, but no, I don't think so. I think it's, it's, it's a political thing. Mm, I definitely. Think. Um, and maybe it's. No, I don't think so. I wouldn't. Much as I. I'm a proponent of everything northern. Mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't say that. Um, right. I think it's much more political, and you'd find mm-hmm. it everywhere. Um, but I think there is something interesting. I mean, there is something interesting um, about uh, knowing when not to be generous. That's the tricky bit. Yeah, and I think sometimes um, you know, I experience it in two ways. I experience it one when I have a good idea as a producer, and you know, sometimes you just go into lockdown in your head and think, right, I'll develop this idea before I talk about it much, and then I'll do it simply because, you know, I want it to be a surprise into the, into whatever's going on. Yeah. The other areas as a consultant, I mean, you know, I get the number of times, and it happened with the squad a lot. You know, you, you get rung up, and it, people always say, I want to pick your brains, and you then have to make a decision about. Whether the you 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 this is kind of pro bono work that you you know it's a younger or an emerging company or someone you like or they're trying to do something different that you want to support and you will give you time you know it might be sitting on a board it might mm-hmm. be meeting someone for a chat um, and then there's the people who just take you know and I am quite a lot with the squad I mean the the squad we 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 occasionally I have to write what I call my Nike or McDonald's letters because <laughs> the squad is actually a trademark now. Right. And I, we based the name on the Welsh writing squads. There was a thing, Oh, right. A I th- do you know what? I thought it was militaristic. I was like, I thought it was a real kind of attack on the industry or something. You know, no, like, no, 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 no. <laughs> it came in, in, in Wales, a guy called Bob Mole set up these things called the writing squads, which was based on the mini rugby revolution in Wales. Okay. In schools, I'll pretend I know what that means. Right. Well, it's just basically kids playing rugby at right, a okay, young fine. age, and, and without, I'm not sure. It's probably without contact, I think. But mm-hmm. it's to encourage, you know, because the Welsh, the great Welsh rugby team, was fucked basically. There weren't the people coming through, mm-hmm. so they went back to the roots and started grassroots rugby. Right. And Bob did that with writing, so he worked with a, with groups who were. Um, I think probably 11, 12, 13, something. and they're still going very mm-hmm. successfully in Wales. And and we we were, in, as much as we were inspired by Man United, we were inspired by that as well, but obviously had an older group, and we were in England, and we sat at this little project in Yorkshire mm-hmm. at the beginning called the Writings Club. We didn't expect it to become as, you know, a big inst- part of the national portfolio, which it has mm-hmm. become, and working over a much bigger area. But of course, people keep coming and saying, "Oh, can I talk to you? Can I pick your brains about the writing squad?" And they do, and then they go away, set something up, just slightly mm-hmm. different, and call it the writing squad. Yeah. And you think, "Go on, think of another name." Then. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> so we trademark the writing squad. Yeah. Uh, and now we do write letters to people 
I don't mind them stealing the model. That's great. You know, that's a compliment. That's fine. But you know, think of a new name. When you say stealing the model, like uh, as long as it's you know, maybe in a different part of the country or something as well. Yeah. 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 It's funny, isn't it? Um, I I don't know. I still don't really know where to draw the line. And I think as far as the generosity versus, like, whenever I, and who am I to help someone? But whenever I think about helping someone. I think maybe I should help myself first. Right. Um, and that's something that's always been in, in my brain, especially because, you know, I've been doing it for so long and, and gone nowhere. Yeah. So it, I think that kind of builds up for ages. Um, longer, the longer that you go without, you know, mm-hmm. a, a, having a, a career in writing at all. Mm-hmm. I so. think and also, in, I mean, this is a bit literature specialist, but the... the, 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 the um, the uh, landscape has changed slightly and I think it was I always used to say it was the most generous art form and I think it probably might still be it can't be far off if it isn't yeah um, but what uh, what's changed is the, the establishment of large literature development agencies in some regions and in order to justify their continued existence I used to be on the board of one but mm-hmm. I've always felt in order to um, justify their continued existence they tend to absorb Stuff. Yeah. So rather than going out and creating and creating lots of stuff that you know making it fly and yeah. you know putting wires together and different things set off, um, it tends to pull things into itself, mm-hmm. um, and I, that that's a slightly worrying development. Mm. We don't have one luckily in the northwest or in Yorkshire. Yeah. Um, the second part of this podcast. Well, I'm not sure taking it out. I'll, Sorry. Well, do you, if you yeah, go on. Out, let's Good idea. Thank you, sir. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad that this is the first time that, because it's one of those where I always always want to introduce alcohol into the uh, podcast, but it always goes better when we have a drink or two. With the few times I've done it, Um, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Well, I mean, you know, if you do leave it in, I think it's worth. One of the good things about the writing squad is we eat. We always buy them lunch, and that makes a massive difference. Right, where do you get your money? From the Arts Council. So you do have an Arts Council fund? Oh, yeah, yeah. I see. We, okay. we are a national portfolio organisation, so it's like Royal Opera House, yeah. Royal Exchange, lots of these royal things, and then... The Writing Squad. The Writing Squad. The royal, it's soon to be the royal work. No, we wouldn't take it, even <laughs> if they offered us. <laughs> but, and, and, yeah, that, that thing of eating together and it is... It's part of... It's very Football Academy, isn't it, that, as probably, well? Probably, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, although we don't stipulate what they should eat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, do you provide financial assistance to your squaddies? Well, it's an, another way of putting that is you can't pay to come on the, co- on the programme. Okay. And um, okay. Also, also, we do have a... Um, a f- sorry, I'm not sure whether you are. We do have a fund... Which right. means that if they want to get, as I say to them, not being able to afford to come is no excuse. Yeah. Because we have a fund, and if you need the train fare paid, we pay it. Great. So, you know, there's there's no financial barrier to taking part. If you're talking about is the money for them, we do have a kind of professional development fund, um, which in, in previous squads was something that happened after they'd been through the two-year program but because mm-hmm. the level of writer is much higher now than used to be we're recruiting much better and not much better writers we're the the, the writers further along in their career the, the writers at that age are now for yes exactly further yeah. along in their career than they were 
in, in say 2000 mm-hmm. up to 2005 six. Um, so it, it's also you know for instance Jamal Gerald who's in the current squad you know we've paid for a bit of mentoring for him and a producer so he can work on his show mm-hmm. that was at the um, it's at the um, uh, Queer Contact Festival earlier this year so Battersea Arts Centre I think this week next week mm. so you know that was a bit of direct investment yeah. in, in in helping him develop a, a relationship with a producer and you know, we we might pay for people to go to particular festivals or um, to 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 produce books. Um, you know, we've just translated a, a, a novel from Spanish with one of the writers, which we've mm-hmm. you know subsidised the production of that to give that translator, who's a a, a um, technical translator, a literary calling card. Um, mm. So there's 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 kind of a pot again, which you know they express a need and yeah. we find ways of supporting that. Hmm. That's really interesting. So there's, it's a customized support, basically. Yeah. Really bespoke. Um, the second half of this podcast uh, is with two people that you've helped in a couple of different ways. I guess Lenny Sanders, who was a, a squad yeah. person, and Jazz Chatfield. Yeah. I'm assuming you you know both of them, and they you helped them with a play or something as well? Yeah, they took a play to Edinburgh, which we gave them a bit of cash. Is that with Deadlat? Is that the Deadlat Dead thing? Yeah. 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 So, yeah. So, you, so they don't have to be, because I, I don't think Jazz was a... No, she wasn't. Okay, so I, I don't can, know. I just see her on Piccadilly Station. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so is it just? It's basically. So there's no, there's no rules basically with the ranks. But you don't have to. It's not like this closed club either. It's no. Well, no. I mean, that we we focus resources on those who are inside. But occasionally there are people who Harry Jelly, who's another yep. you know, Manchester character, and and um, well, he does the Iorganic. flim night. Oh, yeah, Ironic. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, that's I'm, right. I'm, with yeah, Lenny. Yeah. With yeah. Lenny. Um, but you know, we were, we worked with him before um, he knew Lenny. I I, well, I was writing residence at Wakefield Literature Festival, and he was running a a cafe, a poetry cafe at the festival. And mm-hmm. you know, we just ended up talking every night. And <laughs> he seemed um, he was wanted to be a producer, and he came and did something with um, Gemma Seltzer and David Gaffney. Mm-hmm. Uh, around some web projects on uh, one of our residential weekends and I just invited him because he was an interesting guy mm-hmm. and um, was going to be a net contributor I just know, you know, when you meet people like that they're going to be someone who puts a lot back mm-hmm. um, so we wanted to work with him and then he met, not through us he met Lenny, something to do mm-hmm. with Manchester but we've given iOrganic some support both in terms of just talking time not sure we're giving them any money actually. Mm. But we, I think you know I've certainly <laughs> sat down with them and mm-hmm. talked about various things. And in fact, they did do a squad workshop because I think what they're doing in 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 that kind of interpretive writing drama museum kind of world is very interesting. Mm. So Lenny did in fact become the first. We've had squad graduates who have gone into the industry, like there's a BBC radio producer, for instance, who's come back and done a a. Um, a radio writing workshop. Uh, we've, there's a digital journalist who's come back and done a mm. digital journalism workshop. But Lenny was the first current member of a squad to do a workshop, which right. was a good milestone. That's quite good because it, were the other squaddies kind of jealous, like because they went, they came up with her. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Maybe not no. jealous, but a bit like, well, hey, how come? 
No, I don't know. We were being taught by one of our mentors. No, they weren't taught. We just played together for a day. So, you know, the people who came... There's not a hierarchy, if you like. There's not that... We don't sit and look up to the tutor. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if anything, they they were more anxious to serve the group of people because mm-hmm. they, you know, they were conscious that it was, it was one of their first workshops. Yeah. I think it was their first workshop, in fact. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, not their first making workshop with audiences, mm-hmm. but their first workshop with other practitioners. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's just that. I, I don't think that was... I didn't detect it in the air. Yeah. I think the, the, the one question that pops into my head now is... Is there a writing squad type thing for someone who's over twenty one, or is it twenty one that's the high, the top end of you? When we recruit, yeah. Although yeah. we work with them, with some we're still working with who are twenty nine, thirty. Yeah. Because there's, I think, I think one of the things that I found because I was never as, I, I, I don't know. I think young people in general are so much more. It's confident, and they they know what they want to do when they come out of school, and they're really. Um, interested and engaged, whereas when I was in school, it was just you know drinking and having fun, yeah. basically, and having having the foggiest clue what I wanted to. And it wasn't until I was much older that I could even think, oh, you know, maybe I will try this writing thing. And it's funny that it's Jen Ashworth, actually, one of your tutors, that right. made me think that. But is there a, is there an equivalent for an older person, someone that's not in the age range of your? Writing squad. Why do you, in fact, here's a better question. Why do you limit it to young people? Well, originally the, the reason was because we were trying to hit a particular gap, you know, the gap mm-hmm. that I talked about in yep. terms of the, the development pathway. Okay. Uh, there was nothing there, so we put it there. Okay. Um, and, and I suppose we've just gone on doing that, and that's how we, that's how we justify, uh, that's why we're funded. It's because they come in waves, mm. you know, and part of that. And actually, the, the, the age spread, you know, today I met a 16-year-old home-educated guy who's just really beginning to come into literature. And I met a 21-year-old filmmaker who's at the end of his college. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, earlier I met a 22, you know, early in the week I met a 22-year-old person who's finished university. Mm-hmm. And tomorrow I'm meeting a, an Asian writer who's just leaving school, mm. but has you know got quite a lot of uh, attention through the whole first story network. Mm-hmm. So the, the the variation within that gap is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it's more than enough to handle. It's a focus. Yeah, and and and. and uh, just about enough synergy between, say, that 16-year-old and a 21-year-old, even though in terms of life experience and mm-hmm. where they are in their lives, that's a massive, massively different place. Yeah. You know, so. It's probably more conducive to being able to dedicate yourself to an art, really, when you're young as well, I would have thought. Um, it's difficult once, you know, life happens. I would argue that more life is happening to them at the moment than mm. uh, at any other time in their lives. Do you mean by, uh, are you talking politically by, from the government kind no, of? No, I mean in terms of um, expectations, in mm. terms of mental health, in terms of, you know, where they, they I, there was one writer in one of the evaluations who wrote, um, 
that during her time at the squad she'd, I can't remember the exact figures, but it was something like she'd lived in three countries, been to three different educational establishments, lived in five houses, hmm. um, and the one constant in her life was the, the squad. Um, hmm. So, you know, I think the idea that it's a period when... And, and also the, the other massive, massive change that we've seen. I mean, there's two changes. One is technology, mm-hmm. which has been fantastic. And the other is is, is uh, work. And that, you know, almost all our squad is at whatever stage they're in. Um, and definitely once they leave school, have to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not only do they have to work, but they can't control when they work. Mm. Um, so every Saturday morning we have a workshop. I expect calls now from people who have been called in by their employers. Yeah, on a zero hours contract. Exactly. Yeah. So you know, the, one of the one of the richest things opportunities I had at their age was time. Yeah. I had Me too. oodles of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't have to work. It was the doll. Um, you know, yeah. I, I was one well, of those. your folks as well. Yeah, yeah, to a certain extent. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But. Um, you know, the, it was the it was the time when you we 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 used the time well. We made mm-hmm. things, you know. I, although I wasn't on enterprise allowance, there was the that fantastic Tory scheme, mm. <laughs> <laughs> which you know many of the young in, and sort of not young anymore, but many of the indie companies and small presses and things came out of that period when yeah. you could actually go to the job centre and I say I want to be a publisher and they would give you eighty quid a week to be a publisher. Mm. You know. It was a very creative time. Steve's awesome, isn't he? Could you tell I really liked him a lot? I want us to be really great pals. Um, Now, it's the interview with uh, Lenny Sanders, as I said, a writing squad alumni, and Jasmine Chatfield, who is also affiliated with the writing squad in some way, but not an alumni. She wasn't in a squad. How do I describe the two voices so you know who's, who is who? Um, Lenny is the one who talks about I organic and the one who recites the poem. Jasmine talks about Flimnite and does the most beautiful pronunciation of the word Holocaust. That's probably the easiest way to, to differentiate the two. Um, also, Lenny was on the left and Jasmine was on the right. Enjoy. Yeah. Are you enjoying it? In Manchester? Yeah. Yeah. Where are you yeah, from? Yeah, it's good. Um, I'm from Crewe. Okay. And then well, that's not that far away, is it? No, no. But I, I, you know, I've, I've never really lived full-time in a city before. Um, me and Jasmine went to university together in Lancaster. Mm-hmm. And we used to come up to Manchester on the train sometimes. To right. Go, to go to the spoken word nights. Mm-hmm. And then catch either the last train at 10 or the next train back in the morning at 5 and go, mm. oh, we should come and live in Manchester. It's really good. <laughs> I never did the sleeping in the train station. Did you, you not? Did. I'm sure No, you... never. never. I always just went home. No. You, you slept in the train station? Mm-hmm. Overnight? Yeah. One wow. time, me and my friend took sleeping bags <laughs> and lay down next to the, the self-service ticket machines. In Piccadilly? They, yeah. And the people who worked there were really nice about it. They left us until 4 in the morning. And then they said, okay, you should, you should get up now. You know, you've had a couple of hours of sleep. We need to open the station. Oh, really? Can you move away from the ticket machines? And we were like, oh, yeah, sure, yeah. See, I always I- open the station at, like, 7. Or maybe they wanted maybe. to... 
Maybe they, it might have just been an excuse, maybe, because you've been lying on the ground yeah. <laughs> for a while. I've had to do that. I've had to, I work at Piccadilly, so I've had oh, to right. be the person waking everyone up at like six or seven. So um, how many people do you does sleep there overnight? Quite a few. Usually on Saturdays, they're very drunk. Oh, right. Very drunk people um, who can be either funny or very disruptive, which is, which is bad. On the ground or on the benches? I, I've done both. Both, yeah, both. One time I had to open up the train information booth in the middle and there was like about ten people slumped against it and I had to offer them water wow. um, to get them to move, but they really didn't want to. <laughs> we have Mars bars now to offer. That's the I thing. never got that kind of treatment. No. <laughs> I was going to say you shouldn't say that to people because then now you're going to get more people coming in. I think at first they were just to, to pacify people, but now we've kept the last ones for like... Um, diabetic emergencies Gosh. things like that there is a Mars bar stash there so is it mostly what it's just mostly drunk people who miss their trains yeah pretty much wow or um, or lost people or mostly Holy drunk cow. people though huh that's really bizarre um okay so why don't you talk about Flim Night then what is Flim Night yeah, it's um, so I think we describe it as a as a live literature cabaret. Mm-hmm. So we're mostly in the mostly in the spoken word scene in Manchester, but we also have uh, like singer songwriters on, a lot of comedians. Mm-hmm. Um, we basically we pick a popular film, we divide it into about six to eight segments. Mm-hmm. We give each person a segment, and then they create whatever they want based off it. So they don't necessarily have to like follow the story or the themes or anything, as long as something that they make is inspired by that part of the film. Right, and it was it was Thelma and Louise last time, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, was... so what would someone do for a Thelma and Louise night? Like, what, did, what were some of the people, what did they write? So, we had instance? a lot of different stuff. So, um, Becca, who does, who, who founded Stern, mm-hmm. actually, was one of the founders of Stern, we gave her this very difficult segment of Thelma and Louise. Have you seen the film? I have. The very difficult segment. Oh, the rape scene. Yeah. Oh, God. So we had to choose Jesus. who to give that to. Oh, man. Yeah, <laughs> we horrible. don't normally pick films that tackle such difficult issues yeah. because of that, but it was part of Wonder Woman Festival, Yeah. and they specifically asked us to do that film, and we love that film. Yeah. Um, so well, we went with good. that, but then we had that task of deciding to give it to you. So I gave it to yeah. Becca because I know her, and I know that she does a lot of feminist stuff. Yeah. I knew that she'd deal with it well. She was really good. She did a, a poem sequence. She also had, like, a soundscape and, like, a PowerPoint that was, like, at first very fun and then became very jarring. Um, oh. But she dealt with it really well. How? Uh, How? It was... She, I think she mashed up two songs. That they, she mashed up what, the Mickey song by... Yeah. Who's it? Tony Basil. Yeah, yeah, that song. You got it. On it. <laughs> I'm an old man. Um, what was it? I don't remember. There was another song. So she, so she played the songs. She kind of mashed them up over, like footage and stills of them kind of dancing in the bar during that scene. Okay. And then she, she mashed them together in a really jarring way, while showing like stills of like the difficult scene. God. And wow. Then performed poetry immediately before and after. Shit. It's very very good. Kind yeah. Of, like difficult as well. So what is Wonder Women then? Uh, it's a festival. I think it's run by Creative Taurus, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's like a feminist festival. It happens around usually around International Women's Day. Okay. It's, it lasts for ten days. Right. Um, 
So what, what, what does it typically um, consist of? If, other than just, obviously, performance nights, does it do... Is that mostly what it is, or... Is there, is there kind of writing events that associated with it, or do you know? I think it, it seems to be really diverse in its programming. Like, they've... Um, they have all kinds of different events. I think they had some workshops mm-hmm. this year. They had a really good event that I couldn't make it down to on the 10th in the Jewish Museum, mm-hmm. which was, I think, three female poets reading, Claire Pollard reading from her versions of Ovid's Metamorphoses. Metamorphosis. This um, is the a, third a bloody workshop. podcast that of Ovid has come up. <laughs> anyway, sorry to interrupt you. Go on. Yeah, yeah. And, a, and a zine workshop Okay. as well. Oh, and they had film screenings as well, yeah, I think. Yeah. A few film screenings, feminist yeah. films. Oh, wow. And a walking tour of Manchester, I think. A feminist walking tour. Yeah. So uh, it would have been, oh, this is bad, the Emily Pankhurst. Yeah, bit. that kind of stuff. Oh, right, cool. Um, and we were actually involved in another one with Sturd, which was based in Manchester Art Gallery. Mm-hmm. It's the one by the library. Yeah. Um, and that was... Do you want to describe that oh, one? Oh, yeah, that was What Is She Wearing, which was the sort of launch night party for Wonder Women. Right. Uh, Organised and curated by Instigate Arts. Okay. So they had loads of different artists in different mediums in there. Mm-hmm. What were they doing exactly? Uh, they had sculptures mm-hmm. and installations, installations that people could interact with, like, uh, I can't remember the name of the artist, but it was really good. It was a, a wardrobe with some of her clothes in that were from a time when she'd been really struggling with an eating disorder. Right. And like it's Harriet, from Harriet. Yeah. Williamson. Yes, I can look it up. Yeah, similar I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it was really, it was really good, and it has excerpts from her diaries from that time mm. stitched into the clothes oh, as well. Right. Or the, the paper, mm. the pages were stitched on. Yeah. Yeah. So um, go on. I was just going to keep on ranting about that's the okay. different things that were on in different rooms. <laughs> that's quite all right. I can edit. <laughs> that's the beauty of a podcast. <laughs> Brilliant. Could you cut out all of the times where I say, uh, nope. in the middle of a sentence? <laughs> oh, I guess I have to say, say no. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. Um, but uh, it was a really, a really interesting night because it was everything that was on was so varied. Mm-hmm. There was some stuff that was really heavy. There was a a little room that I think is normally a cloakroom or somewhere where security staff might sit mm-hmm. had been made into a little cinema for someone who was working with film. And it was all of the adverts for um, like skin bleaching products that are oh, marketed right. in Asia, but all of the adverts being played at the same time. Gosh. Hmm. Uh, in a really disorientating and horrible way. Yeah. Um, what we did with Sturd was... I think we, we still touched on some stuff that was quite heavy. Yeah. But it was. Is Stir quite, quite a heavy wanted. night? It can be. Yeah. It definitely can mm. be because we have a lot of people coming, um, you know, with stories to tell that they couldn't necessarily tell at other nights because yep. they are hard hitting. But mm-hmm. we also have, you know, we have fun as well. Some light hearted <laughs> moments. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So when you say it's a femi- like when it's a feminist uh, poetry night, uh, is it just women on stage then? No, we've it? actually we've had Fat Roland on oh, yeah. um, quite recently. Um, yeah. It's kind of pro pro women. Yeah. So as um, 
I think they used to always have one male guest on as well as a woman mm-hmm. at least. But um, recently we have often had like all all female lineups, which is which I think is pretty good. Yeah, it's just pro pro feminism. Yeah. So as long as you're a feminist or you agree with feminist ideas, yep. then come along. Yeah. So no knobheads, basically. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, a bit in our safe spaces policy which we read at the start of every night mm-hmm. where we essentially where we, where we say if you spot any knobheads, come and tell us, <laughs> and we'll remove them for yeah. you. Pretty much. Wow. The other thing that you guys are kind of known for, I guess, is Dead Lads, your Edinburgh show. Yes. Are you, first of all, what was that about? Well, it, I, I'm a bit excited about it because it's post-apocalyptic stuff, which cool. fits in very well with this podcast, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it also, I'm interested in people that go to Edinburgh because mm. it seems like quite a massive undertaking to me. Yeah. Something I would never even <laughs> consider. Yeah, it's very difficult. Yeah, what did you do? How did you get it, first of all? Um, we went through the Free Fringe. So we went with mm-hmm. Laughing Horse as like two main companies at the Free Fringe. So the original one was PBH, which is Peter Buckley Hill's Free Fringe okay. organization. Um, and then the other main one, the Laughing Horse Free Fringe, is the one that mm-hmm. we went with, which actually split off from PBH. So they're originally all the same thing mm-hmm. because of uh, creative differences. Oh, right. It's always <laughs> it's, the way. Yeah. So they're very much at war. and. Mm. God. Um, yeah. So that's that's quite a tense thing to experience in a, in at the fringe yeah. itself. Because if you if you're allied with one of them, then you can't. I think it's sort of you can't involve people who are working on productions from the other side. Mm. Like you couldn't share a stage manager between them. But that's I just PBH's yeah. role. Oh, oh yeah. He yeah, so. he is the, uh, the the instigator. Yes. Well, wow. Yeah. Well, not, well, maybe, oh, maybe, oh, I don't know. He definitely upholds it. Gosh. <laughs> Quite strictly. Right. As far as you can So tell. how did you get involved with Laughing Horse and, and get the gig? Um, so you apply, and then for a series of emails, you kind of try and wrestle your way into a slot, because yeah. they have a limited number, and they have a limited number of venues, Yeah. and pretty much they always want to program more than they can fit in. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to do a lot of emailing back and forth, like, okay, your slot wasn't available, mm-hmm. so do you want another one? So we actually ended up getting ours after the program deadline. So we weren't in the official program. Okay. And Oh, right. So it was very much... Cowboys. Like, yeah. <laughs> you could say that. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was quite a big undertaking. Mm going in so late but by the time we kind of got offered that slot and it was it was too late to be in the program we were just like let's just do it yeah and it, yeah it was it was late as well in that the time we were programmed for was I think it was the last week of the fringe mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that's an interesting time to be in Edinburgh because there's people there who've just finished their who are just finishing their four week runs right uh, very bewildered and exhausted yeah Cool. Um, but it's it was a, it was a great atmosphere. All right. So would you, would you do it again? Yes. With, are you going this year? Or are you trying again? I decided to sit it out this year. And mm. I think you too. I think mm. I would go back. I yeah. don't know about you. What do you think? Well, I might go just to relax and watch watch Other my people. shows. Yeah. It was very stressful. Yeah. What was so <laughs> stressful about it? Other than just the uh, the two warring. Factions. <laughs> so there was that. There was also because it was very late on. Mm-hmm. So you have to put in a lot of groundwork. So obviously we lost a lot of time on that. But we kind of viewed it as like a trial run. Okay. Um, 
so we did what we could um we we were in a very early time slot so we were right. on at 12 30 which at the fringe is like pigs and they got like 7 a.m yeah <laughs> yeah um so did you have any nights where there was just nobody there we always got someone actually. right one person um, yeah <laughs> we always got at least two or minimum three mm. i think that was our, our yeah. quietest one but, yeah. we, but we performed to most of these small crowds. Gosh. Um, yeah. And yeah, it was definitely an experience. And it was really good. Mm. It was really good for the play, which we toured a little bit before the Fringe mm. in Manchester and Lancaster. And we had much yeah. more secure crowds. Um, yeah. And it was kind of less unexpected territory. Right. So still kind of in development. This is the new... Sorry, James just distracted me. This is the new one. Is this, is this one that you... When you say it's in development, that's no, the one you performed. The one we performed. Oh, right. So we've been we've changed it a lot throughout the process. And I think okay. we viewed Edinburgh as like another step in like... So the show is not... Piece. You've not washed your hands of the show. That's... Not yet. That's still... Okay, so... And it's post-apocalyptic. Like, so what is the show then? Do you want to try and do a oh, summary? Okay. I'm not very good at summaries. Yeah, it's... Um, <laughs> These two strange women that, uh, during the apocalypse, have become kind of trapped together or bound together, living in this shack in the middle of nowhere, and they sometimes go out and forage for things. So, like, they you're fight talking constantly. So, you're in, if, in the middle of nowhere, like the woods. I guess so. Yeah. So it's very much like the road, kind of thing is it or that kind of a little bit yeah it's very mm. much it's obviously a nuclear apocalypse okay actually, the road is is not as certain mm-hmm. so the, the oh well, that's why it's called nuclear roommates yeah got it <laughs> which is also a reference to like nuclear yep. family mm-hmm. and all that yeah. i'm glad you got that one first actually thank you yeah, yeah. research Good. man Good. I ain't no joke. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you read our blog post on the first draft blog. I didn't. Did I, not? Oh, I, okay, we all about I that saw. No, nope, I, I went to your Twitter page, Dead Lads Twitter page, and just saw the image that said nuclear roommates, and I was like, oh, cool, double meaning. Oh, oh so you got that on your own because we talked about the nuclear family <laughs> stuff oh, in on um, on Abby's blog. Oh right, um, first draft because we did yeah. a bit at first draft mm. when we were first developing it. Right. Yeah, I was just going to say that was our first. Um, preview of it that we did first draft were nice enough to come and have us do the first ten minutes of the show. Mm-hmm. Or, I think it didn't end up being the first scene, but it was the we first bit up. that yeah. we'd, we'd written. Yeah, to fit the time scale. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, so it's very much a nuclear apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's pretty much. I don't know how much you know about the supposed nuclear apocalypse and like how it all works but there's basically you know there's a nuclear winter so everything goes really Mm -hmm. cold yep Um, and then when all the ash clears from the atmosphere Mm -hmm. um, supposedly because there's a lot of science that people went into in like the 80s developing what they think would happen if if like there was like a nuclear kind of holocaust mm-hmm. in the world. So after the ash is all cleared, supposedly the ozone layer is damaged. So all the sunlight that's coming through the atmosphere is, you know, it's incredibly bright, mm-hmm. like too bright for people to kind of withstand really. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how we open it. Mm, They're living gosh. in this really bright, horrible world. Mm-hmm. They're kind of, they've been foraging. They've seen all these people outside that are like crippled by like diseases and stuff. Yeah. They found this, I guess they must've found this weird shelter somewhere. Um, 
that somehow no one else you guess yeah i guess you wrote it so, didn't you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well we deliberately kept stopping ourselves going too much into their backstories mm. yeah because it's because um, they don't matter anymore because there's no reference yeah. points yeah, at all yeah. is there yeah like we we just worked out enough about these two people to know how they would be beha- how they would be behaving in this situation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but yeah. they're definitely they're not they're not realistic characters either really no they're quite strange yeah, they're <laughs> as a result of the blast they're just strange I think both I mm. think they would have been kind of odd before but mm-hmm. it's definitely being in the kind of world ending scenarios brought out all of their worst qualities right um, would you say you two are a bit dark maybe <laughs> no one's ever mentioned that yeah um, I don't well I'm just putting the I'm putting the pieces together you got this Thelma and Louise night that focuses on the rape scene only one bit of it just one bit oh there's other bit yeah that was the part that you decided you wanted to mention though yeah, yeah. And then your your, your show was about an apocalypse, mm-hmm. and then you said stirred is quite heavy as well. Oh well, it um, it can be. I think stirred is a very fun, loving, and welcoming space mm. as well because we have. I think a lot of the time on the open mic we have people who might not necessarily self-define as a writer or people right. who are just trying it out. Oh right. So, have you ever thought about charging for Flim Night or Stirred? We do for both of them. We oh, you do, do like, charge. We do do we do donations. Right. So, um, it's kind of a, a balancing act of like, so we do want money mm-hmm. uh, to pay our fees and stuff, but also mm. we want it to be open to whoever wants to come. Yeah. I've definitely. Cons- I think for one-off events, I'd be a lot more likely to. Yeah. And then with a regular event, I think it's I think it's more difficult because bad mm. language don't charge mm-hmm. first draft don't charge. Yeah. Um, but I think people get used to not having to pay for literature events, whereas if you're going to like a gig, yeah. you would expect to pay for a ticket. Mm. For yeah. Example. So do you think if you charge like a, a let's say a couple pounds or something, it would just that would be the end of the, the people wouldn't come. Sure. I didn't really expect these questions to be so. I don't know why I'm doing such hardball questions. Program. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know I think, why. Um, I think I was talking to you about this mm-hmm. um, when we, we were doing we were having a conversation about booking guests from further away yeah and I think it was a while ago but we were saying you could get some it would be a lot easier to get big names or people who are quite in demand or people who are coming from a really long Mm. way away Mm. if you had like a set entry fee that wasn't by donation yeah it was we need this much we need four pounds from everyone Mm -hmm. but do you think if it was like a name or something that would is that what you mean? Like somebody that's that I don't know. People would know. Is that yeah? yeah. We always like to be able to pay people mm. to do kind of you know to do creative stuff because I think it's it's thing that people should be paid for. Yeah, yeah. Because mm. it's I think it's it's not recognised um, as as work mm-hmm. sometimes, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. writing just isn't yeah. at yeah. all in any <laughs> capacity. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so that's why I, I, if there's one thing about this podcast that I, I always ask about, it's cash. Because mm-hmm. no one else does. Yeah. <laughs> nobody, nobody ever, I mean, even writers, because we're so conditioned to think that it's worth no money mm. that we don't ask for it anymore. Yeah. 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 No, it's really interesting. I've never really... Um, th- sorry, I'm going off on one. No, please bit, do. But, um, because I, I do some work that's a bit more theatery or performance uh 
in collaboration with Harry Jelly mm-hmm. as iOrganic. And because what because that's that's not quite writing in the same way. And we, we end up in discussions with venues about how much it might it might cost to put something on and what our fees are. It's completely mm-hmm. unfamiliar to me because in terms of uh, in terms of poetry it's not really a topic that comes up as no, much. No, no. Uh, what is iOrganic then? So what do you... What is it? Um, we do interactive performances that mm-hmm. are usually quite small scale like for not many audience members at a time. It does have quite a lot of poetry in it, but it's also made up of digital content mm. and games. Why is it called iOrganic? Like, what's the yeah. I for? Does that mean it's kind of digital? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just wanted to sort of... Um, co-opt some mm. of the language of digital media into <laughs> ourselves. But we, we chose the name on a a bit of a whim, really, because the first thing we ever did, it was for a... It was for a festival that Recon, the young programming team, put on at Contact. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to do something... They, they, they wanted performances that were to do with the senses mm-hmm. to do a, a one-day festival... So we thought we, me and Harry thought we'd do ours about food. So we're like, right, what, what, what name would a theatre company who were going to do something about food have? <laughs> uh, I, I organic, great, <laughs> sorted, fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we just did that, and now, now it's the name that we work under. Mm-hmm. We haven't done anything about food since, since, <laughs> last, since last July. <laughs> Outside of that, what are you guys writing at the minute? Anything? Or is you first? Obviously, poetry in your case, I would have thought, Lenny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are you are you writing towards any anything? Are you are you do you write to with an idea of getting them published at all, or is it just writing them for performance? What do you say? I think um, I write. I think my my ultimate goal. With with um, when I'm writing something, is I, I want it to be on the page. Mm-hmm. Like I, ha- I I don't know. I have a lot of fun performing them. Yeah, I really enjoy it. But I think I definitely think a lot about the formatting, and I think what magazine do I want to send this into? Mm-hmm. If um, and like a nice little game to play in in my head is oh, if I was going to publish a pamphlet right now, which things would I put into it? Mm. Which I, I'm not. Have you got anything on you this very second that you've been writing? I, oh, sorry, I've got a bit of a, a poem. Yes. That I can remember some of. Off the top um, of your head? Yeah, yeah. Um, called New Year's Eve. So it's not really very relevant <laughs> anymore. That's all but right. it was at the time. I was really, I was really milking it for <laughs> January and February because it was still topical. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> Overnight, it seemed I switched places with my shadow dressed it in my buttonless overcoat and stained knickers and now I cannot live without shame. The new year comes like a huge dog out of the bushes, like a tooth from a mouth, like a barrel over a waterfall, like me inside a barrel over a waterfall. At a new year's party in a room so full I can't move, I kiss my friend on the cheek and then I'm throwing up and sobbing and sobbing. Good start. Oh, no, that's the first half of it. That's pretty good. Yeah. I'm impressed. I'm well impressed. I have nothing. I've seen you before, me. and I, I, I love. I really like your stuff. But to be able to 
do that off the top of your head. That's, that's quite good. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. I'm I wish I had to remember the whole thing. That's all right. No, that's I perfect. I'm that off. friend that you kissed on the cheek at New Year's. Aww. <laughs> that's good. Have you got anything coming up? But we're thinking about what, um, as well as continuing to mess around with nuclear roommates mm-hmm. and make it into a different sort of thing, we're yeah. thinking about um, our next piece. So it's, 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 is it going to be another post-apocalyptic thing, or is it something completely... It won't. <laughs> something as dark, though, probably. It <laughs> it's, it's coming out maybe quite dark. <laughs> of course um, it is. <laughs> I think we, we bring out a certain bleakness <laughs> yeah. when we try and write together. Yeah, yeah. we do. Um, so Maybe you need to recruit a happy person just to... Have a to eat, bring you up on a little keel. I don't know if they'd if they'd work with us. I think yeah. they'd I think they'd quit. Yeah. And we're working on something about like inner dialogue and the kind of the battles you fight against yourself, mm-hmm. um, which I guess would be acted out by me and Lenny mm. um, yelling at each other, which we actually did a lot of in Nuclear Roommates as well. Yeah. Um, kind of little like inner inner dialogues. Uh, I don't know how would you de- how would you describe it? Mm. Yeah, I don't like not on the level of intrusive thoughts, but kind of the nasty little voices that, that tell tell you things mm. about yourself or about what's happening. Mm. We want to be those voices, right? Or other um, people, even. Yeah. Wow. So I was thinking of an example earlier. Kind of like we're both quite scatty with timekeeping. Mm. And um, I think we both have thought processes that mean that we we get caught up in things. Mm -hmm. So you have this battle. Like, I know how this battle went. If I leave it too late, I have to get a taxi, but then I uh, have to find the money for the taxi. And then when I've, like, in all the time I could have called the taxi, I could have got the bus. Mm -hmm. I end up being late to everything, and I get this kind of weird thought process that I get stuck into. But Can someone (laughs) see dead lads? at some point, the next iteration of that. Not Dead Lads, um, Nuclear Roommates. Yeah, we're working mm-hmm. on, on that. We mm-hmm. want it to be more... We're, kind of, we're still trying to find the right balance because it's, it's a kind of a poetry play, mm-hmm. is what we described it as, and I think we're still trying to find the right balance of which aspects um, are more performance and which mm-hmm. are more like kind of naturalistic and which are more spoken word mm-hmm. uh, and which are theatre. So I think we definitely want to push it, make it more experimental, and maybe mm. kind of have some like audiovisual stuff. We want to mm. we want to build on that, make it more more experimental. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Because a lot of people found. I'm it getting confusing. that from you too. Yeah, we want to make it Massively. more confusing. For <laughs> I think. Experimental and dark. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not to pigeonhole, of course, but. No. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm fine with that. Good. Yeah, it could be worse, couldn't it? Could be. Could be. Uh, Dull and happy. Mm. Yeah. That's not good. Terrible. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's it. Cool. That was easy, wasn't it? Thank oh, you very much, guys. Really nice. Thanks, Thanks for chatting with us. Yeah, no problem. See, how nice were those people? It's crazy. Um, like I say, sorry about the weird garage door noises in Lena and Jazz's interview. I don't know what was going on there. Uh, hopefully, Islington Mill doesn't have rattly doors like that to annoyingly open and close. I really cannot wait to move in. I know I took the piss a bit, but I'm so excited. Um, the next Flim Night is Monday, the 6th of June, and the theme, the, the theme, the film that people are writing about is Silence of the Lambs, which is one of my favorite films and just happens to be the only film 
I preferred to the book. I think it's the only one. I could give it some more thought, but I haven't got much more time to talk here, so I won't. Um, if you want to read for that, I'm not sure if, you're, if you've got time, if you can do it in time. I don't, I'm not sure when this podcast is coming out. But if you want to read for that or anything else at Flim Night, contact Jasmine. Her Twitter handle is in the link on my Twitter page. What, why am I telling you how to look this stuff up? You should know how the internet works. It's 2016, okay? There's stuff. It's easy to find. They've got this thing called Google. Try it. Flim Night. It's film, but you switch the I and the L, you see? If you are a really young person and you want to be part of the next writing squad, it's also easy to find them. Guess how? Google. Um, in fact, they are the first thing that comes up when you Google the writing squad. So Steve must have some really good SEO skills to get to the top of that list. Um, I can't even get to the top of End of All Things podcast. But um, I am at the top of Rob Cutforth, though. Thank you, Dad, for the weird last name. All right. Um, the upcoming interviews I've got, in case, unless they cancel, are Andrew McMillan. That one he can't cancel because it's now uh, 12.30 and I'm meeting him tonight. So if he cancels, that'll be really rude and he won't because he's nice. Um, he's the winner of the last ever Guardian First Book Award, which is quite exciting. So he will obviously be talking about poetry and... I can't think of many writers who have had as good a year as he has. He's won virtually all the awards, I think. Anyway, we'll talk about that, and I'll try not to embarrass him too bad by bringing up all the awards he's won. And I've just booked in Stephen McGough? McGough? McGay? I really need to find out how to pronounce his surname before he comes on. He wrote a quite scary novel called Habit that was uh, published by Salt and it's being made into a film. So that's gonna be some exciting stuff to talk about. He also plays in a death metal band. So yay, someone to talk about metal with. Sorry, young people. Uh, And of course, the Jen Ashworth interview I've been hinting at for the last three or four podcasts to accompany the release of her novel, Fell. She is the best and the interview is the best, but I can't release it until July because Her publisher doesn't want me to, so I won't. Maybe late June. We'll see. Maybe I can talk them into late June. Anyway, listen out for that. I'll leave you now with Steve's reading of his story, No Caller ID. Next time I speak to you, it will be from my very own studio in Islington Mill. Bye. No caller ID. The traffic light is still red. His phone rings. He thumbs the circle. Reject. He's got better at resisting except on the off chance it might be someone interesting. An opportunity he had no idea was coming, a woman he doesn't know yet, only to get background chatter like the caller is staring out of their window eating a sandwich or ending another call before getting his name wrong. Can I speak to Mr Dealey? Paula Dealey, please? The calls are getting earlier. Soon they'll be waking him up rather than irritating his drive to work, his new drive to work out of the city centre to the business park by the airport, along Dead Cat Avenue. In his last job, he spent time with promotion teams on railway stations, in shopping centres, giving away palm-sized cans of new low-sugar drink or sachets of miracle miracle anti-aging moisturiser, amazed how rude people were to smart girls and smiling guys offering them something for free. 
how they avoided eye contact, sped up their walk, sometimes even buffeting or spitting some mean little why the fuck would I want that or stick it up your arse, love. He became kinder to people for whom it was only a job and probably not a job they wanted, thumbed the green button on cold callers and politely explained how he was not interested in switching, already had insulation, had claimed his PPI, hadn't had an accident, and found himself surprised how often the cold callers ploughed right on with their script or cut him off without even saying OK or thank you or maybe another time then or ring us if you ever do have an accident. He called the road he drove every weekday Dead Cat Avenue because it was a feline death run. What surprised him wasn't the dead bodies but the length of time they remained there, days not lifted or picked clean, just left to rot and fume stain, decomposing to a roll of grey carpet lying in the gutter until next time the street was cleaned. When he spotted a new victim, he counted the days they lasted, and Tom Symes thought about them before dropping off to sleep in his rented flat. Apart from the dead cats, life is as good as it could be. The square, little oasis of leafy peace a step away from everything. He is able to run out along the canal towpath into the open wasteland of old docks. He commutes against the traffic each way. He likes the job and the people, relaxed, northern, friendly, feels more at home than he has in any place since the break-up, the break-off. People call the split different things, depending how close they know it was to the wedding. Just as he pulls up at another red light near the brewery that looks more like a chemical plant, his mobile rings again. Lanethley, Wales. But before he is remembered, he knows no one in Wales. He's thumbed green. Hello? Can I speak to Mr. Doley, please? Mr. Porrell Doley. Paul Daly, yes, speaking. I'm not trying to tell you anything, sir. I just want to inform you that when, why are you ringing? I just wanted to let you know what is in it for you. Sir, if you want to save money on your Paul thumbs the red circle. A sting in the small of his back and neck. The bang and crumple. The girl in his mirror is blonde. Has a sunbed tan. A huge can of Red Bull in one hand. Her slab phone in the other a long white cigarette in her mouth, unlit but broken at the filter, dangling, fluffing about like turkey wattle, as she looks from side to side as if surprised to find herself in a car, let alone a car that has just driven into something, someone. He gets out. The window is open, the fag filter stuck in her pink lipstick. She's saying, Jesus, fuck, Jesus. Are you all right? I thought I was stopped. Were you on that? She looks at her fablet, big as a cheek. Yeah, no, I, I wasn't calling anyone. Look, just checking texts. Oh, fuck. He wants to reach in and take the broken cigarette from her mouth, but knows a man sticking his hand through her window will scare her. Traffic has begun to back up. Cars and vans behind try to nose into the outer lane. He looks for damage. Hears her door opening and she's standing beside him. She passes him the supersized can. Here, hold this and leans between her bonnet and his boot. He can smell the Red Bull petrol fumes, and when she straightens, he notices she only has made up one blue eye. She takes back the Red Bull. Nothing, is there? It sounded worse than that. Look. He can still heal the crumple, but the girl is right. There is no damage. He says, I once did a job for them. You what? Them, Red Bull. Oh, yeah, right. He asks, is your handbrake on? Oh, shit, I don't know. No, leave it. He eases her car off his. Nothing, like I said. No. 
She razzles her hair, nails the same blue as her car. What do we do now then? Jesus fucking hell. Ironically, bumpers, the way they're made these days. Nah, I mean, here I am ringing people all day. Our records show that and all that. I'll have to ring you. But there'll be no record. There never is. It's all crap, just names and numbers. You want my details? No need, is there? You all right to drive? I'll have a fag first. Nah, shit, fuck, what's the time? He checks his watch. It has stopped. He tries to remember if his wrist jolted into something, the gear may be. She leans into her car and checks her phone. Ah, no, crap. I'm on two late warnings already. Do you think they'll believe me? She lights another long white cigarette. Not much going on, is there? He thinks she is nodding like she means him, his eyes inside his head. What? I don't know, it's... There's not much on. She points towards the row of steel masts down the central reservation for sports events and festival banners, their crossbars empty. By the curb, the body of the tabby greying for a week is now a tufty roll. Paul's full of her Red Bull and cigarette smoke. He's thinking Vimpto, marker pens. Are you OK, mate? She touches his arm. He's not sure if she's falling or if she's reaching out to him. She'd have to stand on tiptoes to kiss him. I'm fine. Look, good, good. I'm sorry, mate, got a rush. She does everything in short stabs, swivels, bobs into a car, checks her face in the mirror, smiles up at him and gives a little wave. Even the engine coughs and stabs at misfires, then rushes into life. She grabs her seatbelt over her shoulder, smiles up at him again, slots the belt, glances in a mirror, shoves the cigarette in her mouth, eases the little blue car out and is off, leaving him standing, a man in the carriageway, rather than a man standing behind his car. He carries a discontented uh, he, he carries a disconnected feeling through a listless, unpressured day, conceptual stuff, which stands at which trade fairs need to say what to whom, the stage before commissioning and organizing teams. Every time he looks at his watch, he's surprised the hands still stand at seven fifty. There is no place near their offices for repairs. The only shops a petrol station, a roadside burger trailer, everything else beyond security at the airport. Driving home, he looks out for the girl in her blue car, wishes he'd asked her name. The empty banner masts, the dead cat. He wonders if there had been damage, debris, how long their plastic and glass had have lain scattered along the curb. On his run along the canal, his neck begins to hurt. Not pain exactly, but enough discomfort to make him turn back early and walk up from the basin of pubs past the air museum to his flat. He showers, sits as straight as he can at the small glass table, thinking about her nails, her small hands, her one blue eye, black-lined and mascarad, the other puffy and unmade up, the way she leant between their cars, her short bursts. He scrolls through Flipboard, stories he ought to be interested in, news, football, campaigns, tech. He avoids Facebook avoids Jane, his ex. They were 14 when he noticed her, 15 when he found her parents' number in the phone book and dialed 141. Her mother would answer, her father, her brother, who is this? Who's this calling? Who's this please? Click. She never answered. All through school she seemed unreachable, then everyone left, moved away, and gradually he thought about her less, once a day, once every other day, once a week, when the look of someone reminded him. Six years later, he saw her in the crowd at an air race in Rotterdam, 
watched her talking with a group in caps and expensive wind jackets until she noticed him, waved, extracted herself and came over as if they'd once been good friends. It always amazed him so much grew out of that chance moment, agreeing to meet when he finished work, going out, falling in love, getting a place together, somehow deciding to get married without either of them actually asking. The plans, the invitations, the cancellations. It wasn't her, it wasn't him, it wasn't anyone else. It was just the end, and here he was, back north, knowing all that past still sits in his phone. He cannot bring himself to unfriend her. On Saturday, he takes his watch to be repaired. Monday morning, he checks his phone and the clock on his dash to make sure he's waiting by 7.45. The dead cat roll has gone, the banner mast still empty. He had thought she meant there was nothing in his eyes when she said there was not much going on. He waits until 8.15, then drives to work. She had said about her warnings for being late. Each morning, he extends the time a little. On Friday, one eye on the approaching traffic, he Googles car crash claims, gets call free on 0800. If you're ready to claim or want to talk it over, call free phone 0808. Your first step is to speak to one of our legally trained advisors. Call us free. At the weekend, he collects his watch, but the strap squeezes his wrist. He puts the watch back in his long, thin plastic bag and wanders the shopping centres. He watches Breaking Bad back to back on his iPad. Sunday, he doesn't get dressed, doesn't even open the curtains. Waiting by the banner masts Monday, Tuesday, he Googles business parks out of the city. Wednesday, he Googles insurance jobs, motor claims handlers, insurance telesales. The same employment agencies come up again and again. Red Bull and Fagsmoke, Vimto and Market Pens. Are you okay, mate? She touched his arm and he was not sure if he was falling or she was reaching out to him. Everything in short stabs of movement, like this digging pain in his neck, he can only release by flicking out the fingers of his left hand, a fast reverse claw. Paul? Paul? It's his line manager, Sharon. Paul, are you with us? He looks around. It's just the two of them, lunchtime already, empty desks, screensavers, laughter from the end cubbyhole with the microwave. Sharon a silhouette in the bright office blinds, her lips black. I've been needing a word. Okay. You keep doing that, hmm? With your hand. You've been in late, later and later. Yesterday you dreamboated all through Hods. I've been waiting three days for your provisional wrecks and this. She imitates the fling of his fingers twice. I think I have a bit of neck lash. Whiplash. This girl ran into the back of me. Get it looked at. Like RSI, if you don't get it looked at right away, it can turn into... She waves her hand in a high, wide arc. You know, everything. And get those wrecks to me by close of play or I'll give Kay the job. And if you have, don't have a job, you don't have a... Her hand loses way in the arc and Sharon shakes out the dead end she has run up. You know what I mean. Paul knows what she means. The higher-ups are looking for wastage. Kay is wastage. If he takes his job, he is worse than... He puts the wreck list on Sharon's desk at 5.28 and by his watch is on the road back into the city at 5.31. He thinks it's a dog's body at first, lying by the brick railway bridge wall. He slows and sees the beautiful length, the bright eyes that make him think the poor thing might still be alive. He pulls over. Three uniformed schoolgirls are taking selfies with the dead fox. 
They flap off as he approaches, a vulture scaring off smaller birds. The fox is long, almost fat for a fox. Paul thinks well-fed, the leafy suburb, posh waist, then realises she must be pregnant. Fucking hell. She slots the cigarette in her mouth, pulls at her hair. Hello, you again? He looks down at her. The roots of her hair, like the hair along the fox's spine, darker nearer the skin. He says, hello. She smiles up at him. I saw you stop. Wanted to say sorry for the other week. No problem. I mean, it's fine. That's it then, really. What are you going to do with that? Her. Whatever. Her, is it? Sad, that. I mean, it'd be sad whatever, you know, not being sexist-like. Yeah. What are you going to do? Make a hat? One of those, what they're called, like a skin scarf? Ah, oh, sick, that. I wasn't... Oh, no, I mean, sorry. Yeah. Look, I better... She looks towards the little blue car. He notices the ghost of their collision, a grey graze on her bumper. Yeah. See ya. See you. About. He realises he's doing a Sharon-type arc wave, watches the girl get in her car and light one of her long cigarettes. She checks herself in the mirror and lurches off. Paul is ashamed he hadn't wanted to ask her name. He looks at his phone the bright, empty icons. 